This is a Federal News Network podcast. Ensuring resiliency and efficiency of the electrical grid, it's a top national security concern. Keeping the grid top-notch will take more than wires, though. It'll take algorithms. My next guest, a scientist at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, developed an algorithm that won the top prize in a competition staged by the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, ARPA-E, and Dr. Hassan Hizaji joins me now. Dr. Hizaji, good to have you on. Thank you for having me, Tom. So you developed an algorithm, and what does it do, and how can it help the grid? So the algorithm uses artificial intelligence to manage all the generators, set points, or any grid in the world, basically. The competition had hundreds of different grid sizes and types and different generation types, and the algorithm had to give the optimal solution in terms of which generator to use, how much to generate, where to route the power, and all this to be able to guarantee the demand and make sure that if there's a failure somewhere on the network, we still have the lights on. Got it. And how does the industry do that now? With a slide rule or what? No, they also use old algorithms that were developed back in the 70s or the 80s. And I think there is a gap that RPIE is trying to bridge there. And this is where scientists like people here at Lanolt can do. I'm imagining the older algorithms are little more than collections of if-then logic, such that if the voltage is here, then do that, and kind of simplistic. They're a bit more than that. They use what we call linear models. So electricity flows in a nonlinear fashion, but these models approximate the physics using linear models. So what we're trying to do here is get rid of the linear models to have more accurate representation of where the electricity is going, actually. And what has changed to enable the creation of such an algorithm nowadays? Well, we have faster methods that we had in the previous years. We have methods that can take advantage of things like sparsity. Usually when you have a mathematical model, all the variables are linked together. And if you can detect patterns in the model that can help you, you know, build faster algorithms, that's the way to go. And this is what we exploited in our solution approach. So this sounds like an algorithm that can change its activities depending on changing conditions and relationships it discovers? AI? Definitely. Yes, definitely. I mean, that's one of the advantages. The solution we had to produce had to be flexible enough to operate under different conditions with different settings and so on. And how do you go about developing such a thing? I mean, what is the process to create a model like this? Well, for me, it took 10 years, I would say. You know, I started working on this 10 years ago. I was an assistant professor at the Australian National University, and, you know, I, I was interested in how the grid operates. And so I started building these more accurate, as I said, nonlinear models that can represent how electricity flows on the wires. And then, you know, one thing led to another. I was working on improving the scalability of my algorithms, make them faster, basically, make them solve bigger problems. So when you're doing this in academia, you're playing with toy models. You're solving a problem on a grid with, let's say, 100 nodes. So, you know, have 100 generators and 100 loads. But then when you're dealing with the real-world problem, you're suddenly looking at 30,000 nodes, if you're thinking about the U.S. grid. And this is where, you know, you have to spend time making sure your algorithm is robust, it doesn't diverge, it gives you a good solution every time. And so it took a lot of time, but I made it. (laughs) 
All right. We're speaking with Dr. Hassan Hijazi. He's with the Applied Mathematics and Plasma Physics Group at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And so one of the challenges then is that as the algorithm scales up to larger data sets, so to speak, little tiny fluctuations that might be errors at the small scale don't translate into, golly, Niagara Falls just went dark on the big scale. Yes, correct. The bigger the networks, the more numerical instabilities you will have especially, you know, some lines will have very small numbers linked to them. So we talk about resistance. These are properties of the wires you have. And the bigger the network, the more variation you'll have in those properties. So uh, you have to take care of those. And where do you get the data sets to test on larger and larger scale? So that's the nice thing that ARPA-E did. And I was really happy that they actually took the time to do it properly. They actually built the data sets from industry so they took industrial data sets from the ISOs, so the companies that are uh, you know, in charge of the transmission grid, and they made sure that these data were anonymized so people outside the industry can still look at them without having to sacrifice any uh, security. We had hundreds of data sets to play with during the competition. Now, the Energy Department sponsored the competition. You work for a national lab and were the winner. Does that mean you don't get any cash prize? So the good thing is I actually uh, participated in my individual capacity. So the prize that will um, be given by our payee will be prize money that I will get. Got it. But you plan to stay with the lab or maybe take that and commercialize this new algorithm, put it in a black box and make a billion bucks? (laughs) No, my plan is to make it open source. I'm a strong advocate of open science. So once all is said and done, I'm going to make it publicly available uh, so that anyone can use it, including the ISOs in the U.S. and and worldwide. And what will your next project be then, or what is it? We're working on on a number of projects uh, here at LANL. The nice thing about the lab is, you know, you get to meet people from many backgrounds. So I'm not only working on power systems, I'm also working on UAVs and cyber uh, physical systems, so a lot of exciting projects to come. And you mentioned you were working at the, I believe, University of Australia. What is your route to end up at the Los Alamos lab? Yes, I was at the Australian National University for five years. This is when I started collaborating with the scientists uh, at Los Alamos. We were working on these um, power system models, and so was people here at LANL at that time. And so they reached out to collaborate, and um, you know, one thing led to another, and they uh, invited me to apply here at the lab. Dr. Hassan Hijazi is with the Applied Mathematics and Plasma Physics Group at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, 
where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain 
of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, DC, I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.
financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.